Hi, this is Jay Washburn. And I'm Joe Bandosky. And you're listening to Start Writing. And uh, this week is a marketing episode. We are going to be talking about blurb theory. So as we did our research on the internet, there are basically four major theories on how to write a blurb. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to take the blurb for Song of Locke. We're going to look at it as is, and then we will discuss each theory. We will run the story through it, see what comes out on the other side to kind of give you guys a living example. And uh, so, yeah, so the reason we want to talk about blurbs is that the blurb is what sells your book. Copy, covers, titles, that's what gets people to click on your ads to look at your book. The blurb is what sells the book. And if your book is free, so this is like your lead magnet, the blurb is what gets people to actually read it. Almost everyone I know who has a Kindle has a stack of free books they've never gotten to read. But if your blurb is good enough, you are the free book they do read. You get moved to the top of the pile. So whether the book is free or you're selling, this is hugely important. This is the most important piece of writing on your book you will do. <laughs> and most authors look at it as kind of an afterthought. Understand if you want to make a living as a writer, <coughs> blurb is the most important part. Blurb sells the book. So Blurb gets the book read, which leads to reviews. I made Joe pause this because we're talking about the blurb that I wrote and because it's really bad. And I know it's really bad. And I never really spent much time on it. Like, I'm exactly what Joe just described. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, gonna, this is a little scary, actually. It's a little anxiety-inducing for me. But I, I think yeah. it'll be valuable for me and hopefully for all of you guys, too. Yeah, so... All right. So this week in critiques, uh, this actually happened uh, in my group just the other night, and uh, the the author had a had a piece that they brought, and uh, this girl was having an appendicitis, and she uh, had gone into the kitchen to uh, to get some wine to try and dampen the pain. She didn't know what was going on. She just knew her stomach hurt, and that if she got a little bit drunk, it wouldn't hurt so much. And it, the pain is so bad that she like stumbles, she spills it everywhere. Her mom comes in, she sees it, freaks out. And this is what the mom says, what in God's name happened? There was wine all over and you're passed out next to it. And it's like, that's dialogue <laughs> that's, that's giving us the description. I mean, what in God's name happened? That's fine for dialogue. The next line is, shouldn't be dialogue at all. That should be description. You should describe what that looks like. And so... <laughs> There is a rule in writing that you should put as much into dialogue as you can. But this is overboard. <laughs> right? Descriptions should stay as description. Don't use dialogue to sneak it more in there. So, But yeah, so that was this week in critique. <coughs> okay. I have what's probably my last Michael Crichton tip. <laughs> uh, I read Congo recently. And uh, this is going to contain spoilers, as usual. Um, there's there's a theme of intelligent apes, uh, and specifically once they get to the Lost City, there's these intelligent apes that are uh, basically the, the antagonists, I guess, or part of the antagonistic force. Um, but just there, there's a lot of questions that would come up as the characters encountered that concept. <clears throat> And to address those before the characters actually met the apes, there's an intelligent ape along with them. It's basically like a zoo animal. 
but he's able to address a lot of those questions and, and teach you so that when you get to the end, it doesn't feel like a deus ex machina or like something completely out of left field because he's slowly been preparing you to encounter those apes at the end yeah. with this one that he brought along on the journey. So in a way, it almost seems like random that there's this ape involved, uh, but it, it, it helps with the story in a, in a really cool way. Yeah, that is cool. That's cool. He did a lot of brilliant things in Crichton's yeah. work there. <laughs> so. Well, and we're going to talk about Lisa Crone soon. Yes. And I, I think he's, his weakness is what she teaches. Mm. And so I, I do think his fiction is missing some things about character. Yeah. Uh, so that'll so, be fun when we get I cannot that. remember who wrote in. I, I'll have to dig up this email. But one of our, our listeners wrote in an email and talked to us about interviewing Lisa Crone. I don't know if we're big enough to get her yet because uh, she charges a, a pretty big speaking fee, but I don't know if that would reply to, to like a podcast interview. Um, but from that, I looked up her work and I do love it. I've been studying it for a while now and I think she's she's got some brilliant points about writing fiction. So we will do an episode or a few on her work and her, her different perspective on storytelling. Man, and it's good stuff. You guys should be excited. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. So, all right. So, blurbs. Uh, so, what is a blurb? Because uh, if you're writing your first book, I imagine people are like, what is a blurb? Or, or maybe English is a second language. So, the blurb is the summary. So, if we go back 40 years, this is, this is what's on the back of the book, right? It's the little summary there detailing it. And the interesting thing is that blurb theory is fairly new because as much as those were there to help sell the book, they were not major selling points of a book. Like some people read them, some people didn't. It didn't have a big impact on their opinion. But they do now. Um, it's, a, it's a much bigger point. People are more willing to read them. You can put a lot more, particularly in the digital format where most people are buying their books. You know, you're not limited to just a little jacket cover or an inside cover, which was maybe a paragraph. So you can put a lot more. You can space it more. You can do more with it. And people go through a lot more books uh, digitally, and they see a lot more that they're unfamiliar with. And so it's become a much bigger part of the selling process. But good ad copy uh, for your ads, whether it be Facebook or Amazon, that will get you clicks. But the blurb is what sells the book. That is what makes people click the buy button. And even even for free books, if the blurb is good enough, people say, well, I'll check that out right now. Instead of just putting it on their Kindle and be like, I'll get around to it. right? So you want to make sure that you're not just selling books, you're getting books read. Because that's what leads to word of mouth and reviews, is getting the books read. And so the blurb is not just about the, even the sell. It's about convincing people that of all the books they're going to pick up and read, that needs to be one soon because they're very interested in it. Let, let me ask you a question. So I don't really buy hard copies anymore, but when I used to buy a thriller, like a paperback, you'd flip open the beginning and there'd be like a little, a little hook mm. that was like some action sequence usually. Mm. But like separate from the actual beginning of the story, right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. How does that fit into the digital? Like, would you ever put a little piece of your story, maybe a little bit of dialogue? I think, or... I think where that comes in is the sample. You can now pull a sample digitally. You know, whether you're if you're on Amazon site, you can say look inside, or you can download the sample to your Kindle. 
Well, and the look inside is just like the first 20% or something, well, So right? is the sample, right? Yeah, okay. okay. So it's just that first chunk of the book. And so I think that plays a bigger role there. Okay, cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, because I, I don't think I've seen a lot of people do that method uh, with, with the way blurbs have gone and, and theory has developed. Uh, because there's a lot more that goes into blurbs now. And uh, when it comes to writing ads, the blurb is what will determine what we call the conversion rate. And so this becomes a big deal. So if you're writing one ad and for 30 clicks, you get a sale. So let's say you're paying 30, 10 cents for each click. Then that means it takes you $3 to sell one book. Well, if your book is $2.99 and you're making $2.07 on it, you're losing money on that. So the better the blurb, the lower that's going to get. One in 15, one in 10. And so... And what that does uh, for those, and we'll go over this again when we talk about ads, but the better your conversion rate is, the more you can afford to pay for an ad. The more your impressions are, the more books you sell, right? And so one of the big things that gets talked about a lot in Amazon um, group is people not making money. And it's like, look, you need to figure out what your conversion rate is, how many clicks to sell, and then you need to make sure your bids are low enough that you're making money on that. That, so the, there, there's a there's a kind of interesting dynamic. You want your bids to be as low as they can and function. But at the same time, as you're still working out that blurb, they, uh, I mean, as, as you get better at selling books, you can actually go higher. So there's that interesting dynamic to push the impressions more. Because if you're selling one in three, then you can pay 30 cents an ad and that's still only what 90 90 cents and you make 207 right you can you can pay at 30 cents and you're fine whereas someone who only sells one in 30 they cannot they can't even pay 10 cents right now they've got to be paying like seven cents and so the blurb is that conversion point so whether you have a lot of books out already or if you're you're planning your first book it's really important to get a good blurb so now the reason we are addressing blurbs now is because we talked about building your author page last time, developing that lead magnet. And so we want to talk about blurbs now because even if the book's not finished, you need the good blurb to get people to sign up for whatever you're releasing as a lead magnet. So they will be ARC readers for you later, right? So that's why we're talking about blurbs right now is because even if your book isn't finished, you need a blurb for your reader magnet. So, and I also want to say like my current blurbs are not that great. I've admitted that. Uh, in my current project though, I think I've told you guys this. I have the main document, which is my story. And then I have a story Bible, which is like the companion document. In the story Bible, I have a section for blurbs. So my current project, when I get an idea that I, that I think, oh, that that's a great blurb, then I, I jot it down. Good. So I'm already kind of brainstorming those as I go. And they're all very rough at this stage because the book's you know yeah, far no. from done. Yeah. But actually, another thing that's interesting, I will tell people about the premise of my book. And they'll go, ah, and they'll like repeat something back to me. They'll like rephrase it. Right. That's usually really good stuff for blurbs. So I've written yeah. a couple. They'll tell me what my book is about. about. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah, exactly. That's a good blurb. So. Yeah. So, yeah. But, yeah. So that's why we're addressing it right now is you need to be writing a blurb, put it on the lead magnet to make it more efficient <laughs> to get make sure you can get those reviews when we release. All right. Um, so there's there, we're going to talk about the elements of the blurb first. And then we'll go into blurb theory, okay? So, uh, so the basic uh, 
principles here is uh, one, you're always going to want to look at what authors in your genre are doing. Um, because again, we have mentioned that cover, title, and blurb are not just there to get attention. They are also there to communicate genre very clearly to the reader. Because if I want a fantasy with swords and magic, and your cover looks that way, and your blurb reads that way, and I pick up a post-apocalyptic, I'm not going to be happy <laughs> about that. Right? And uh, the same thing, if your cover looks like a thriller, uh, well, let's say your cover looks like a fantasy, and your title reads like a fantasy, but your blurb reads like a post-apocalyptic, I'm going to be like, what's this really about? Is this for me? Maybe not. Even if it's a great blurb, if it doesn't read like the genre I'm looking for, I might move on. So look at what's being done in the blurbs in your genre and make sure that that styling is incorporated in your own blurb so that you're still communicating very clearly your genre. Um, so one of the big ways you do this is we look at the iconic language of genre. Ancient, arcane, top secret, infiltration, agent, operative. Uh, mage, necromancer, elf, marine, uh, FTL, if you're familiar with Mass Effect, or faster than light, hmm. right? Um, solar system, galaxy. And, uh, so all of these things communicate genre. And so you'll, you'll, you'll want to kind of use some of these genre words in the blurb so that you're still communicating very clearly. This is the kind of story that it is. And assuming that your ads are targeted at the right people, that's the kind of story they want. What, faster than light, how is that different than like wormhole or interstellar travel? Like, so wormhole is like a portal from point A to point B. The FTL drive in Mass Effect, I'm such a nerd. <laughs> like, it's just like, like, it is just, uh, like warp speed, let's say. You know, you don't portal from one point to another, okay. you, you physically travel. Yeah. So, like in Mass Effect, they have the Mass Effect relays, <laughs> which launch people, which are like a wormhole across the galaxy. Okay. So they have this huge, huge community that way. But as you're traveling within a solar system, you have to use the FTL drive, right? So oh, you, wait, within? Yeah. So like from Earth to Mars, you use the FTL drive. Oh, okay. Because it's a shorter distance. Yeah. So yeah. Huh. Cool. <laughs> 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 so, all right. Um, so, and then now one of the things they recommend is putting a question in the blurb. But if a lot of blurbs, and you'll even see this with traditionally published blurbs, they're terrible. The questions they put in are just terrible. So I'll read uh, a couple. Um, some of these are made up. Some of these are actual ones. And so this is the question Ed, that comes at the end of the blurb. Will she ever find love? Will he save the company? Can she save her job and find Love in her life? Will they ever get over their pride and prejudice? I can answer all those questions with a single word and tell you the end of the book at the same time. Yes. <laughs> those are terrible questions. You know, they, they basically say yes to all of these questions. That's the answer. So let's, if we take one of wait, them. Wait, wait, but are you saying the blurb should end with a question? So it is encouraged that not necessarily end, but have a question in it. So well, we, can it be just be an implied question, or does so, it really need to be a direct question? So I, I haven't looked into that that deeply, but they do recommend a question. But if we take one of these cliche yes no, and so that's part of the problem with these questions. They're yes no, and the answer is yes, right? 
So let's take take my story and we say, can he stop the next Skyfall event? What's the answer? Yes. <laughs> yes, and that's the end of the story. Okay. Why am I reading this book? I already know how it ends. But let's flip the question. How will he stop the next Skyfall event? Well, I don't know. Unless I read the book. Hmm. Right? And so by cha- making sure you're, one, not asking a simple yes-no question, because the answer is always going to be yes, and that's the end of the book. But rather you ask the reader how, and they're like, I don't know. I don't know how. Because that requires reading the book. So... I have not used questions in my blurbs. Um, so like I said, and, and it wasn't covered in any of the theories I discussed other than they said have a question. Okay. So, but yeah, so one of the things is to avoid these give away the endings. Simple answer is yes. <laughs> so that you see them all the time. They're terrible. I hate them. I'm like, why, why would you think that's good in a blurb? <laughs> no, just for me, like I connect that to when you're teaching, and you want discussion in your classroom, you should never ask a yes or no, no question. question. Yeah. You want to ask a how question or a why question. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so avoid those kinds of questions if you're going to use a question. Uh, avoid cliches. A race against time. How many times have you heard that? <laughs> in a world. In a world is so cliche, they made a movie making fun of it, right? Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. It's called In a World. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so it's got to so, be said in like a deep, slow voice, though. You're yeah, saying it too loud. I am, I am, I am. But yeah, so <laughs> terrible cliche. Uh, so also, your characters are interesting. Make sure they come across as interesting in the blurb, right? Believe in your characters and make them interesting there. Hyperbole. Uh, it's a standard of the industry, and so I'll talk about what I call econs and emoticons, right? So, uh, I, I love psychology and, and science and I'm a big follower. So, economists in, initially started coming up with all kinds of theories about how economies should work, how decisions should be made and are made, and, and none of it was relevant. People were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And so, all these economists' theories were useless because they didn't actually work with human behavior. Hmm. So, then the, the field of behavioral economics came into play. And one of the first things they establish is what they call econs and humans. And so I actually refer to them as econs and emoticons. And so on the far left, you have what's called an econ. This is a person who is entirely logical in their decision-making process. Well, it's like left brain. So, yeah, like they will, you know, they will buy something that is cheaper rather than something that is more expensive based on a purely logical decision, regardless of price or hype or anything. They're logical, and that's how they make decisions. On the far other end, you have people who are almost entirely emotional in their decisions. They just go with what they feel, right? Mm -hmm. Very intuitive that way. Most of us fall somewhere on the spectrum between these far ends. And so, as we talk about each of these techniques, initially, if you'd asked me like five years ago, I'd be like, that's useless, why would you do that? But now I recognize I tend to be a little bit more of an econ than an emoticon. Hmm. And I need to recognize that there's a big world of people who are on different parts of the spectrum. And, and at least half of them are probably more on the econ, on the emoticon spectrum than on the econ. Uh, so I'm way on that other end. On the econ spectrum. Yeah, yeah. And so as we talk about these elements and techniques, understand that they're going to appeal to one side or the other more. Hmm. So hyperbole. Uh People tend to really overhype things. 
And uh, so here are a couple quotes, and these, these are praise for the book. Stunning controversy that's spinning out of control. Raymond Curry, The Sign. Never before seen revelations seem to be leading him into a single, impossible, and inconceivable truth. Dan Brown, The Lost Symbol. And the mission is incredible. The consequences of failure are unimaginable. The ending is unthinkable. Matthew Riley, The Six Sacred Stones. And so the, seeing the title, The Six Sacred Stones, I thought, oh, this is an Indiana Jones type book. And I liked that blurb enough that uh, I went and looked it up. Anyway. But then, to be honest, I saw the cover and I was like, eh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, so this, that came from uh, jo- Joanna Penn. I make sure I'll reference my, so- my sources there. So, so but, is this next one. So, but, but you're, con- you're uh, condoning hyperbole, right? I you do. I recognize. Hype it up. Make them so, excited. This, Even if you feel like you're giving a little too much. Yeah, yeah. Well, so here it is. So, so uh, most people don't know. So Danielle Kahneman is a Nobel Prize winner in the, in the field of behavior economics. He has one of the most effective theories in explaining human behavior ever created. Is he the... Brilliant. I think he wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, that guy? Maybe. So, yeah. But yeah. So anyway, uh, in an interview with Daniel Kahneman, one of the things he tells people all the time is you have to overpromise because so many other people are. And if you're not, you're not competing with them. Hmm. And so that's kind of where I stand with hyperbole is I, I, I kind of go back to that Kahneman quote. He says, you have to overpromise. You have to have that hyperbole because everybody else does. And if you don't, you don't look like you're on the same level as them. Hmm. If you're just good and they're amazing, people are going to go with amazing. <laughs> and even if they're using hyperbole and you're being literal. Yeah. You have to, and that's why you have to have the hyperbole is because everybody does. Ma'am, so I think this is a problem actually in my books where – if you read my book and then you go and read my blurb, you'll be like, oh, he described it perfectly. <laughs> but it's it's very accurate and it's not that enthusiastic, mm. which I, I think the hyper, hyperbole is about enthusiasm. Yeah. Like, get yeah. pumped. Like, you want to make them read it, not yeah. just describe what it is. And I think that's <laughs> all that I've done. It's just all that you've done. Here's, here's so. what it is. <laughs> okay. Uh, you want to communicate the idea of your setting. Part of this is communicating genre. Uh, so Washington, D.C., uh, the Rotunda, uh, from the Roman Colosseum to the icy peaks of Norway, from the ruins of medieval abbeys to the lost homes of the Celtic kings. Each of these communicates a certain setting uh, of where the story is going to take place. And it communicates an element of genre. Not all of it, but a, but a degree. That yeah. makes me want to read that. Doomsday Key. That's good. Okay. Um, let's... Uh, at the end of the blurb, you're going to want to have a call to action. Buy. And then usually you want to say because. Buy because. Because because works better. Okay, so you're saying on Amazon. On Amazon. It's describing it. Buy this now because. Yes. Okay. Buy now because. Like copywriters will tell you statistically copy with the words now, you, and because convert better. <laughs> so you're saying you you should buy this now. <laughs> well, not necessarily you should buy this now, but somewhere in the if copy you can in the copy you're gonna have buy you because now. So in my book but Yeah, buy now because three that gives you two in a row right in there. In my blurb for X dot I wrote you'll join Nate and Danny. I don't know if that works, but I was trying to invite the reader in. Uh Anyway, just okay. a thought. <laughs> but yeah, so you do need to have that call to action in there. 
you get better conversions with the call to action. And then again, you want to use the words now, you, because. Right? <laughs> so these are statistics on copywriting. So, um, also, you want to have the blurb to be visually appealing. In the newsletter, I'll put a link to uh, Dave Chesson's site. Uh, Dave Chesson, uh, he's a Kindle Panewer, if you're not familiar. I've recommended his his class on Kindle ads before. So he set up a site where you can type in your blurb and then you can go through and, and resize it and style the lettering and bold things and make it. And so you can really make it visually appealing and then he'll convert it into the programming language it needs to be for Amazon to do that. So if you go look at my blurb, When the Sky Falls, you'll see that. There's bold, yeah, and there's large text. Indentation, know. can I do that? Yeah, yeah, like you can do all of that. And so, yeah, so... What you want to do is is make it very visually appealing. And so let me add something to that. So you're talking about styling. Another thing I would consider is to think of your paragraphs as poetry. And so that means like if there's one line that's really punchy, let it be four words. That it's just one paragraph is yeah. four words. And, and maybe have a short uh, opening sentence and then a longer paragraph if you need one. But... But try to make the blurb look like poetry. So, yeah. so the shape of it is actually emphasizing. Because yeah, it should be designed to skim because that's how, likely how people will approach it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so now if this is just on your – so as soon as you start to get comments, whether it just be on your lead magnet or whatever, you're going to insert some of these into the blurb to support better social proof. So if you look, if you look at my blurb, you'll see I have – the best debut novel I've ever read, you know, which is one of the one of the reviewer's comments about the book. And there's several others, you know, an eye-opener to the weaponization of fake news, a game-changer. So I pulled these quotes from my reviews. Now, if your book's not on Amazon yet, but you do have a lead magnet, as you get comments back from people, you put those in there, your social proof. So, okay, so that covers the elements of Blurb that we needed to cover. Um... So now let's talk about Song of Locke. Do you want to give us the blurb? <laughs> okay. So now we'll talk about blurb theory. So we'll go through the blurb first, <laughs> then we'll talk about each theory, and then we'll plug the blurb into the theory. Okay. Uh, so I'll read the academic version. <laughs> and this is currently on Amazon, and it's not converting that well. <laughs> uh, here it goes. <clears throat> Locke loves stories. They fill him with a longing he can never quite describe. But he's not the sort of kid who actually lives adventures himself. That is, until a bloodthirsty band of marauders passes near his home and Pick, a musical sylph, dares him to follow. In hopes of fulfilling his longing, Locke accepts the dare. This leads him on a quest where he must face snarling wolves, wield a magic blade, and risk his, his life to rescue a goddess, a girl he hardly knows but who he can't stop thinking about. In the spirit of Legend of Zelda and Peter Pan, Song of Locke portrays a detailed fantasy world, somewhat grittier than its forebears and drenched in human emotion. The tale has sword fights, witty banter, crushes, and even some subtle philosophy smuggled in. It's an epic for everyone who loves good stories. For anyone who has longed for something that seemed forever out of reach. Song of Locke is also an artisan book, written, illustrated, and typeset by the author. A masterpiece handcrafted from beginning to end. Alright, so that's the initial blurb. 
All right. Now, not only that, but if you look at it, it's just one giant block of text. <laughs> that's, that's how it is. Is it that way? <laughs> yeah, that's that way. On it. I copy pasted, man. <laughs> okay, dang. So, okay. So, I was at the gym, and I'd recently been reading some of Lisa Crone's work, and uh, I was just running on the treadmill, and, and I'd been, I'd picked up Song of Block, and I was reading it, and uh, I was thinking about the story that he was telling, and uh, I, I tried, I tried to craft a, an opening, opening section to a blurb for him. So this is what I created: <clears throat> All terrible things come in the night, thieves to be unseen, assassins to go unnoticed, and that's how our world started to end at night while everyone slept, and everything was quiet. Locke was the first to wake, the first to see, at least the first living thing, because I never sleep and am only breath. <laughs> so that that uh, I was like I was, I was like I feel like that's a good opening bl- to the blurb. I wouldn't do that as just the blurb. It's just the okay. opening. We would okay. start there. So, but yeah. So that's what I composed at the gym. Then Travis J. Then Jay <laughs> <laughs> took it and he he reformed it another layer. So go ahead and uh, so, so here's my redo of what Joe just wrote. All terrible things come in the night while monsters move unseen and murders go unheard. And that's when our world began to end, at night, while the forest quietly slept. I never expected it, but I sensed the evil as it crept in, as a vengeful sorcerer strangled all of Elfland by permanently taking away our light. And I never expected Locke to try to save us. After all, he was just a boy. And like me, he was afraid of the darkness. Okay, so there are definitely some things I like in there, but there's some points where I felt it got wordy. Okay. So we'll go, we'll talk about when we go into chrome theory. Okay. So, all right. So the first one is what's called four sentence method. And so the idea is that you, you, you take four sentences and that's it. And you compose them into these elements. So the first sentence is hook and premise. The second sentence states who the protagonist is. Uh, the third, third sentence establishes the antagonist. And the fourth sentence defines what the conflict is and what is at stake. So you've written up some stuff here. Uh, why don't you give us a go? Well, so these are not crafted, obviously. So the hook and premise, Locke wakes up and daylight never comes. And so they slowly discover that the water and the light have been uh, cut off uh, from the land. Okay. Give us give a sentence two, or I guess um, yeah. Okay, so next sentence to, two. Who is the protagonist? The protagonist is Locke, and he's this like young boy who's an elf, and he's accompanied by Pick, who is a sylph. Uh, so think like Peter Pan and Tink, or think like from Legend of Zelda, Link and Navi, right? Uh, and the book is actually narrated by the sylph rather than by the hero Locke. Uh, so there's, it's interesting, but they're they're very closely woven together. Uh, Pick is kind of Locke's uh, Jiminy Cricket, so it's kind of a dual protagonist in a way. But yeah, anyway, okay. So three, the antagonist. Uh, this is a little complicated too, and maybe that's a little problematic, but there's the evil sorcerer who causes the curse, 
and then but but he's not like this aggressive physical protagonist he's obviously magical and distant uh but then there's these demon wolves uh that are like the physical antagonists and then there are like wraiths and some undead and so i think of that as like well the emperor in star wars that there's one of those but the emperor doesn't even show up in the first movie right the mm. The bad guy you encounter is Darth Vader, and and in my story, that's kind of the wolves. Like you don't actually access the main antagonist till the end. Uh, so I think in the blurb, I could sell either of those antagonists, whichever seemed like was stronger or catchier. Mm-hmm. So so pick one, write us a line. Uh, <laughs> well. Um, so before we get into like doing these, let me do the fourth one, which is what is the conflict or what is at stake? And, uh, so Locke's like internal issue is that his mother was killed by one of these wraiths in the darkness. So he's like particularly afraid of the darkness and of the wraiths. Uh, and he's also like kind of lonely without that mother figure. Uh, and that, uh, that fear makes him particularly protective of this goddess figure who enters the story a little ways in. Okay. So do you want me to go with what I got? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. So this is four sentence method. Sentence one, hook and premise. It was the end of daylight. And as expected, the people blamed each other. Sentence two, who is a protagonist? Except Locke. The boy who was afraid of bugs. <laughs> Sentence three. Who is the antagonist? In his search for truth, he discovers a curse cast by an elf outcast. Ooh, I got a little repeat there I need to work on. In his search for truth, he discovered a curse cast by an elf outcast, preparing an army for vengeance. Sentence four. What is the conflict? What is at stake? As the darkness remains and water dries up, the entire elf society prepares for war against the only enemy they can find themselves. That's good. <laughs> so that's that's what I came up with with the four sentence theory. Now, if if you follow the four sentence theory completely, you'll notice we're missing a few things. We're missing hyperbole. We're missing the call to action, and uh, we're missing a question. So these are elements you, that will graft around it, right? The call to action we can still put at the end. Okay. Well, um. and so we're just gonna have a question: How can Locke gather his courage? And face the darkness, rescue the princess, and save Elfland. Like, am I going to ask a question like that? or? So, here's the question. Right? <laughs> How will a boy afraid of the dark, afraid of adventure, find the courage to save his people? I like it. So, it needs and a then, third element. It's a rule okay, of so three. Okay, so by now. So, because we mentioned bugs above. So, maybe I would be more specific. Afraid of spiders. How will a boy afraid of spiders, afraid of the dark, afraid of adventure, find the courage to save his people? Oh, okay. Huh. So I wanted that rhythm of three. Yeah, I like that. So. Okay, but then we're going to end it with... Call to action. Now buy the book because buy it's the best thing since... Of luck now. Since Game of Thrones. Because, <laughs> because you loved Zelda. Because... Legend of Zelda didn't have enough story. Oh, yeah, that, that's actually kind of true. 
There you go. <laughs> that's that's my blurb. <laughs> okay. According to this theory. So I just want to tell our listeners that you've been writing blurbs like crazy for your own book. Yeah. And I I, I feel like your practice is showing. Actually. Yeah, yeah. This, this is a learnable skill. Which <laughs> it's is, a learnable skill. That's yeah. encouraging for I me. I wish actually. I could dig up my original blurb, but I've thrown it out so long ago. Oh, I really? couldn't I couldn't dig it up. So I keep I just keep a list. In I fact, do I, now. I can show you right here on my song of lock. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Mm. Yeah. So I, I have a list now because what I'm doing is I write a blurb, I post it on Amazon, I track for two weeks my conversions, and then I put a new one because I'm still in a testing phase because I'm trying to figure out which blurb is converting best. Man, I, I just got to say, as an artist, I... And maybe this is like the feeling side rather than the thinking side, but I just want to go with my intuition when when I write something. I'm like, oh, this is powerful, and I can feel it, and I want to go with this. But this uh, split testing is stronger than that, which which I I I have some resistance to that idea, but I know that it's right. Yeah. Like you really can write two blurbs, and your intuition can be wrong yeah. about which is going to resonate with the most readers. Yeah, yeah, very true, very true. So particularly, like, I definitely take that approach because I feel like there are fewer econs in the world than emotons. And so often when it comes to things like selling, I don't trust myself at all. I'm like, I'm far too logical for compared to most people. I can't effectively decide what they'll buy. I can't. Yeah. I don't trust it. This is good. Just trust the facts. <laughs> Just trust the facts. Okay. Do you want to give us your version of the four sentences? Uh, no, I don't. I don't, no, I, I, don't. Don't, I don't think I'm ready to write one. <laughs> I cranked this out while you were talking. <laughs> yeah, you're... No, no, no. I'm we a pause. Pra- I'm a Listen- practice blurber. Listeners, you have to know we paused. <laughs> <laughs> we paused. <laughs> it's funny. Well, he, well, I, wa- I was taking a minute to write. He was writing too. I just finished faster than he did. Like he said, I've been writing a lot of blurbs. Oh, so. by the... So this is a side note, but I wanted to ask... Have you read my book? I was thinking you hadn't actually read it. But uh, the way you wrote that blurb, I was like, oh, maybe he did read it. Let me see. Let me see. I, I think I'm like 60%. Oh, okay. So, but that's part of what makes it easy to write the blurb is if I know the book, then like yeah, the whole yeah. thing about him building an army. I don't know if he actually built an army, but he's got several minions at his command. And so I was like, well, maybe okay, he's building yeah, an army. You called it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. there are some things I was, I thought you'd read the first couple of chapters. And then in your blurb, I'm like, wait a sec, maybe he's read the whole thing. <laughs> so, well, it kind of seemed that way. It was going that way because, you know, like uh, initially, like he had a group of Teneri apparently with him. I don't know if they worked for him, but they fought the hundred in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Then he had the Salamade. Then he had the two wolves. And then right now he had a bunch of Teneri soldiers with him when they found him. Yeah. So I was like, it definitely looks like it's All going right. that way. Yeah. yeah. Well done. So, but yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so having read the book, I get, if you're writing your own blurbs, it's easy. You know your own story, <laughs> so you don't have to deal with this issue. So, Man, well, I just got to say, I think I struggle with that sometimes because I'm so immersed in the story. Uh, writing the blurb, I just feel like there's so much that I want to say. Like, I feel incapable of boiling my story down to four or five sentences. It's so hard. So, okay, so do, should we go over the... Let me. I'm going to read your base blurb again. So you just heard the four-sentence method. You saw us put it in place along with a question and a call, call to action. 
And uh, so we'll go back to here's the bass player before we hit the next theory. Locke loves stories. They fill him with a longing he can never quite describe. So it doesn't tell us any, it tells us about the character, right? Which we actually introduced in, in sentence two. So, but there okay. are theories that do introduce character in sentence one, right? But it, yeah, this is a pretty soft intro to it, it is a very soft intro. But he's not the sort of kid who actually lives adventures himself. That is, until a bloodthirsty band of marauders passes near his home and Pick, his musical self, who isn't actually musical, Pick doesn't sing, remember? (laughs) (laughs) Dares him to follow in hopes of fulfilling his longing. Locke accepts the dare. This leads him on a quest where he must face snarling wolves, wield a magic blade, and risk his life to rescue a goddess, a girl he hardly knows. Uh, but who can't, who he can't stop thinking about. In the spirit of The Legend of Zelda and Peter Pan, Song of Locke portrays a detailed fantasy world somewhat grittier than its forebears and drenched in human emotion. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull back here. Um, but yeah, so, so again, so you get a feel for what the original looks like and then you see what I rewrote it as within the sent four sentence method. So let's go to Crone on blurbs. So hers is uh, it's done in parts. So part one is character and context. Part two is theme and mood. And part three is act one and two based on a four-act structure. So if, if for those who've been listening for a long time, we talk about uh, the midpoint turn. So this is before that midpoint turn because that is the end of the second act and four-act structure. So as much as everything's about three-act, and we even discussed three-act, I've really come to the conclusion four-act structure is how stories work. Because there's just too much a difference between the first half and second half of act three <laughs> in the three-act, of act two in the three-act structure. Yeah. This is the line that I wrote for Jay while I was running on the treadmill. <laughs> um, and then what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to take his and I'm going to chuck it up. I'm, I'm going to rewrite it, my theory on Chrome, right now. So we're going to pause and you won't know. <laughs> Again, so while we were paused, <laughs> Jay, Jay pointed out that as I was writing this, that I didn't start off with Locke. And so I want to point wait, out... Wait, wait, wait. Because the first bullet point is character and context. Yeah, the first po- bullet so, point so is... So I said, well, that's not character. That's not, yeah, so said. he was saying that's not character and context. It's context. It's context is what that is. And... Crone is not sentence. This is not sentence one, sentence two, sentence three. This is part. So you can have several sentences exploring these ideas in these different groupings, almost like different paragraphs. Although ideally, your first paragraph in a blurb is going to be one line called your your tag or your catchphrase, mm-hmm. right? So mine is, what makes you believe a lie? That's not the actual beginning of the blurb. That is the Oh, it's tag. before the beginning. So it's the, oh. very, it is, it's the very first line you read on the blurb, but it's not it's actually separate. part of the so blurb. So you got yeah. a couple hard returns separating it from the actual blurb. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's it. And uh, so, so yeah, hmm. and it, it's on the cover too, but yeah. And so, so we didn't discuss that element, but I like it because it's yeah. very, it's glanceable. Yeah, it's very glanceable. So yeah, I guess, I don't know why I didn't have that in the notes, but yeah, we should mention as an element, you want to have a tagline or catchphrase or something, short, very short sentence at the top and it stands alone. Okay. Yeah. So, and then, yeah. Good stuff. So, okay. So, so, so he was pointing out, be like, hey, you didn't start with Locke. And I'm, and, and I wanted to point out, it's not sentence, it's part. Okay. So we started with context. All terrible things come in the night. Okay. 
So here we're going to plug some of the lock into, uh, into Chrome theory. So part one. So this is what, what I initially wrote. And then here's Jay had, had redone it. And then I redid it again for this. So, um, character in context, all terrible things come at night while monsters lurk unseen and murderers perform dark deeds. That's when our world began to end at night while we slept not knowing that morning light would never come. Locke was the first to notice that the world was broken. And I never expected Locke to... Tr oh, never mind, that's not me, that's you. <laughs> so so that was that was part one, uh, character and context. Uh, part two, theme and mood. When adventure calls, Locke is afraid of it. The same urging cost the lives of his twin brothers, and now it echoes his name. Only with pressure from his elemental companion is he willing to take the chance a path that leads through poisoned armies, undead minions, and a possible war between his people. Oh, that's good. <laughs> right. Part three, act one and two, based on four-act structure summary. When the cause of all this darkness is revealed, Lost is asked to fetch the tool needed to free his people, but he must go alone. How will Locke, the boy who was afraid of bugs, survive the long night of the wolf and save his people from their own mistakes? Man, dude, this is great. <laughs> so that's that song of Locke on Chrome Theory there. Okay. So I would say that it probably needs three or four more drafts. There's definitely some rough points in it. Um, but that's what I came up with so far. Travis, yeah, your this, turn. This gives me a ton to work with. <laughs> well, okay, man. The, I'm embarrassed to even read this. but um, So the next one is the Author Society. Do you want to introduce them? Um... I don't know what to say. So this was, I, I, I have identified them there because they had a very unique take on blurb theory. And so I wanted to reference their site. So this was their approach to blurb. Okay. So the, their first item is situation, uh, which does that mean setting? Like, I'm not quite sure. Okay. So what, why don't I take you there and we'll, we'll look at some of their examples. So yeah. So their formula is situation, uh, introduce a problem. Promise a twist, and then you uh, end with an emphasis on mood. Um, so, so here, I, how do you distinguish situation from problem? So I'm going to read the blurb from their site. Now, again, this is similar to Chrome. These are not sentences. It's not sentence one situation. It's part one situation. So uh, this is the girl on the train. This is her blurb. Rachel takes the same commuter train every morning. Every day, she rattles down the track, flashes past the stretch of cozy suburban homes, and stops at the signal that allows her daily to daily watch the same couple breakfasting on their deck. She's even started to feel like she knows them. Jess mm. and Jason, she calls them. Their life, as she sees it, is perfect, not unlike the life she recently lost. So, only... The last half, though, I think there's anything interesting there. And I think the hook on it's weak. Like, I think it yeah, takes Rachel, too long. Rachel takes the commuter train every morning. Yeah, yeah. every day she rattles down the track, flashes past the stretch of cozy suburban homes. You've lost me now. And that that actually book. seems, like, important for Act 1. Like, as you're reading Act 1 of the actual book, I think that's good stuff to know to, yeah. like, really get immersed in their life. But, yeah, that doesn't catch me from a blurb. But it... She doesn't describe the situation, right? And we get a bit of background, right? There's definitely a context element, not unlike the life she recently lost. Yeah, that is actually where it first hits me. Yeah, that's that when one. it gets you too, right? But um, it'd be hard to get that 
without no. having the setup. I don't, I don't I, know how you can balance. I, that. I, I think I think you could take it take, 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 take every day on her way to work. Rachel sees happy couples breakfasting together. Uh, well, I need a few minutes with it. I'm not going to work with it. <laughs> I'm not going to well, pause but it. But just cut to a cl- sooner. You yeah, say, you need right? to get there sooner. You definitely need to get there sooner. So, uh, so part B in this method is, uh, a, introduce a problem. And then she sees something shocking. It's only a minute until the train moves on, but it's enough. Now everything's changed. Unable to keep it to herself, Rachel offers what she knows to the police and becomes inextricably entwined in what happens next, as well as the lives of everyone involved. Hmm. Uh, so it doesn't even explain what it is, and I actually think I'm not a fan of that. Again, I don't think the example here on their site is great. Wait, but this is a real book that's quite successful, right? Yes, this yeah. is the actual blurb. Yeah, well, yeah. and I feel like if you, read, if you read indie <laughs> books, they do better on blurbs because... An indie does not have a marketing company to sell their book. An indie sells their book on their blurb. Okay, I see. Right. So people, yeah, okay, I got it. <clears throat> so, yeah, this was written by the marketing department who was going to do a whole lot of other things to sell the book <laughs> mm. other than count on this blurb to do it. So, and you have to understand traditional publishers are expecting people to mostly be buying paperbacks. Which means they're more likely to spend time on the summary. They're more likely to thumb through the book. So the blurb is less important because they're mostly selling paperbacks. And people are more likely to, if they picked it up enough to read, they'll probably read the whole blurb. Hmm. Right? Whereas you cannot count on that on Amazon. Like, a click away are ten other books on that page with great covers as well. You know, so it's like, I'm three sentences in, you don't have my attention. Clearly you don't know how to get it. I'm moving on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the, the third part is so enter introduce a twist. Introduce a twist. So has she done more harm than good? That's, That's twist. It. Yeah, just okay. the one sentence there. And then uh, part four is a mood. Compulsively readable, The Girl on the Train is an emotionally immersive Hitchcockian thriller and an electrifying debut. Okay. That's That's actually similar to what I tried to do when I said... This is like Legend of Zelda and Peter Pan, yeah. but grittier yeah. and more emotional. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's their theory, right? So situation, which uh, uh, they're calling situation, I would often say is context. Okay. Right? And uh, But then they say you introduce a problem and then you introduce a twist. Right? <clears throat> okay. Well, so this is not that great, but I'll, I'll read it. So... For situation, I put one morning in the forests of Elfland, the sun never rose. Um, okay. ha- having understood, though, what they meant by situation now, I think I might talk a little more. bit more about, yeah. uh, like, what Locke's life was like before the curse hit, maybe, mm-hmm. or uh, essentially maybe build up the idyllic state that Elfland is. So that we know, yeah, that's what lost. That's what we lost was this really great. Right. Uh, Oops. Anyway. Okay. The problem. The problem, so I wrote, Locke awoke to find the rivers and cascades flowing across the landscape had vanished. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe I need more? Anyway, I just wrote like a single sentence for each of you. The twist, when Locke brings a mysterious scroll to the seer, the seer asks Locke to join him in finding a magic sword that can break the curse on the skies. 
Okay. Uh, man, I feel like I could do a little bit more about uh, like making, helping the readers understand how hard that is for Locke. Like, he yeah, do, he doesn't want to be involved, and he kind of gets dragged in. So I, I would need to add something there. And then the last one, mood. Uh, oh, Jesus, this is so bad. Uh, it's at times lighthearted as the as lighthearted as the laugh of a sylph, and sometimes as heavy as death. That's what I got. There you go. As <laughs> heavy as that, that sounds like pick a lock for the story. As heavy as death. That's well, what they that, would say. <laughs> that's a, yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually, for X Dot, I wrote a lot of the blurbs in first person from the, the hero's perspective. Uh, and I think there's some power in that. Uh, I would do it with this, except that Pick is such an unusual character. It's hard to even let readers know what he is. In a blur, I wouldn't like. So you, I kind of like. I call him just the elemental companion, and the reason I did that is one, I didn't want to explain what he too. And elemental is a genre word. Okay, yeah, I actually like that, and I haven't <laughs> ever used that phrase, but it's great. Yeah. <laughs> so just wrote it down. Awesome. <laughs> well, you've got the whole blurb I wrote up there above. Do you want me to take a crack at this one, or you want to move on to? The Let's next move one? on just for time's sake. Yeah, because this is getting this is getting long. So. Okay, um, so another site that I found that tended to have a, a, a bigger variation uh, on um, blurbs is Authors uh, Unlimited. And so their, their pitch is backstory, characters, main conflict. Man, so this somehow seems liberating to me that I can talk about more characters than just Locke. Mm-hmm. Because it says characters as opposed it to does, yeah. protagonists. Uh, I don't know if the, that might be a nice time to take advantage and explain who Pick is or talk about the seer, talk about the goddess. There are a lot of cool characters. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on if I were to branch out from the protagonist, who who would I touch on? I, just because I've studied this so much, like my brain goes to the study antagonist. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> but I mean, if you wanted to, you know, you could... You could do a section on pick. Let's take a pause. Let's write some up some uh, blurb here. And uh, okay, so we have taken Song of Locke and plugged it into blurb theory three: backstory, characters, and main conflict. Backstory. Uh, this is me. When Locke comes across the most fearsome army in the land, he finds them slaughtered by an unknown force. They had sought to end the curse of darkness, but now the duty falls to Locke. Man, so I I just kind of rewrote this one, which is, When the skies of Elfland turn black with a curse, the most feared army ventures out to break it. Locke, a boy who's afraid of darkness, takes a dare and follows them, only to find them lying in their own gore, massacred by a mysterious enemy. Man, right. Yeah, I like this backstory thing. That's a... You like it? <laughs> All right, characters. Locke, the boy who is afraid of bugs, afraid of wraiths, afraid of dark, afraid of the dark, stumbles on the stroll, scroll that could save his people. Now he just needs to find the courage to do it. Pick, an elemental companion who is ever urging Locke to, do, to be more bold and daring, but is too afraid to even touch a living thing. Yeah, and I don't want to say mine. I okay. I think yours is better, actually. <laughs> I didn't think mine was very good. <laughs> so, well, main conflict. But I just I just want to say, 
none of these that we've written are just like amazing, but they've got a lot of potential. Yeah, well, like, they, I mean, I'm they're going to do great things with these. I'm excited. They're, they're, they're all first drafts, right? These yeah. are all first yeah. drafts. We're just kind of cranking them out as we go here. Okay, in main conflict, when dark armies gather and the last of the water in the world dries up, lock and pick must overcome their fears and chase, da- chase after something they hope is more than myth to save their people. <laughs> yeah, wow, man, you're good. <laughs> there we go. So there it is, Song of Locke. We read through the opening blurb twice, so you got a feel for what it looked like. And then you've seen us discuss each of these theories, and then we've plugged Song of Locke in there. Now, these are first drafts. Now, think about how many drafts you did on your book, and then think about maybe chapter one. How many drafts of chapter one did you write to get that right? Because that is, you know, the most important chapter in your book. How many times did you rewrite it? Oh, and you're, 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 yeah. you're probably going to want to do the same with your blurb. So these are our first drafts, but you can kind of see how each theory kind of takes a different approach there. Man, and Song of Locke is a sprawling epic, if I can call it that. There's a lot of elements in there. And it's interesting that each of these theories kind of drew us to different points of the mm-hmm. book. And uh, yeah, and it'll be interesting to split test these and see which of these resonates most with readers. With your audience, yeah. Because, well, and I want to look at uh, the theory we just did, um, and uh, the Authors Unlimited theory, because this theory has probably the biggest emphasis on character. And mm. there are definitely a group of readers who prefer that. And I think my book is a very character-heavy book. So, yeah, and so, as opposed to that, whereas the Crone theory... Um, is, is, you know, uh, we're, we're more introducing characters in context. Whereas here, we just talked about the characters. So, yeah, so there's definitely differences in the theories and, and everything there. So, yeah. 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 And I, I like that. That I, I feel like that's easier. That's what my mind focuses on is character. Uh, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether people click. Yeah. So, so you want to go through three or four drafts on each and then, yeah, the final thing is, uh, I usually tell people, uh, once you get your final version of these three verbs, you take it to writing group, get the live feedback because it's online feedback is good, but you can't discuss in the moment, Hmm. right? So take it to your group and then have them talk about it, get some more ideas. And then the final is testing it with your ads. So now if you haven't published yet, you can't uh, do that. But you can do two different landing pages, right? And you can direct people to either one or you can do a week directing to one, a week directing to other. And you can see how many books did people request based on that. Hmm. And you, so you can still do your own kind of split testing even if the book's not out and you're, you're gathering readers for the ARCs. So yeah, so blurb theory, selling the book, getting the book read. Whew. If you like the show... We would love to hear from you, or uh, if you leave us a, a review, that would be great. Uh, if if you are a fan or not a fan of the marketing episodes, let us know so we can get some feedback as, as to whether or not this is something you want. Same with the, the grammar episodes. Um, interviews and discussion, that's what we are. So if you don't like those, listen to a different <laughs> podcast. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So if you're, if you're interested in the links and more detailed notes, uh, sign up for the newsletter and we'll, we'll get you all of that. Man, Joe, thanks. This is so <laughs> helpful. I hope it was helpful for you guys too. This is good stuff. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. That's the end of our episode. So it's time to start writing.